This is John Halsman, and welcome to The Culture, where we look at the things that really matter in life. And we continue our foray through the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone, making sense of this fascinating genre that took the world by storm, particularly in America in 1967, where all three of the original spaghetti westerns, A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More, and this one we're going to talk about today, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, were all released back to back to back. And what a punch that must have created for the Americans in 1967. And we come in some ways to the apogee of the spaghettis here with the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is operatic in form. Uh, Leone has now had success with the first two, which were the highest grossing movies ever made in Italy up to that time. Fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more, each one topping the other. And so encouraged... He was given a real budget by real movie makers in the United States, and boy, did he make the most of it. So this is a director at the top of his form, knowing what he's doing. The bold experimentation days, a fistful of dollars may be gone, but you have a further perfection of Leone's art as he goes, and he goes to one extreme here. It's a bit like the Beatles with Sgt. Peppers. Once they began to figure out what was going on in the studio, they used it more and more. Once Leone began to figure out what was going on, with how to make a spaghetti western, this was the apogee of that, that, that performance. In both cases, afterwards, they then scaled things back, thinking they'd gone too far. And that's the strength and the weakness of the good, the bad, and the ugly. You either love or hate it for its operatic form. It's taken the western and combined it with a Verdi opera, combining a very, very American genre with a very, very Italian one. Uh, the last of the spaghettis, which what we're going to look at in a week when I'm back from my trips and adventures to Palm Beach, the war game I'm playing starting tomorrow, so I'll be off the grid for the next couple days. The next is Once Upon a Time in America, which is a more restrained, more disciplined, shorter movie. Here, Leone's let himself go. The film is almost three hours in length, and with a budget, he now gets to do everything that he was only dreaming of and perfecting in the first two. And what do you have? What ingredients are we talking about? You have a compelling story, a three-way story of amorality with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And really, the title is a misnomer. They're all good, they're all bad, and they're all ugly, and they cross this line back and forth between good and evil over and over again. And this moral relativism has always been in the spaghettis since the days of Fistful of Dollars when you had the two crime families uh, the Rojos and the Baxters with Clint going between them, um, like in Yojimbo, which it was taken from. The Kurosawa film is the samurai set himself out for hire. Now you have three mercenaries out for hire. In theory, in the story, Clint is the good. His name is Blondie here, but it's really, he's the man with no name. It's a continuation of the first two. Lee Van Cleef, back after his tremendous performance, and for a few dollars more, is Angel Eyes, is the bad... And fantastically, Eli Wallach, maybe the star of this film, is the ugly. Um, and one of the great dualities of the film is Clint, who barely says seven words the entire movie, as Blondie and his sometime partner, sometime rival, Tuco, Eli Wallach, who is constantly talking, constantly talking. One of his many monologues has more words in it than Clint uh, uttered the entire film. And it's this almost, again, operatic quality, this tonal difference between the ultra-laconic Clint and the ultra-verbose Eli Wallach and Blondie and Tuco that really makes it work. They're almost instruments in the opera. 
and the language almost assumes that kind of quality. But the compelling storyline is that the three of them are out in search of Confederate gold, and they form alliances and unform alliances, but in the end, they're only in it for themselves. And at various times, you sympathize with each of them. With Clint, you sympathize because he tries to help the major, the colonel in the Civil War scene, the Union colonel, who has to blow up, attack the same bridge over and over again in the futility of war. And remember, this film is being made in 1967 as the Vietnam War is rising, and there's more than a little anti-war European, anti-Vietnam tone to Leone's film, where he takes the bloodbath of the Civil War, and Clint is sympathetic to a number of the soldiers who are hurt here, and that is a quality you admire in him. Tuco, for that matter, has a surprisingly touching scene with his brother, his disaffected brother, who's become a priest. And as Tuco said, when his brother tries to blame him for the dissolution of their family, he says, you either end up in our business as an outlaw or a priest. I chose my way and you chose the other. But it turns out Tuco has been providing for his family and his younger brother. And they have a brutal but affecting reconciliation. And you begin to feel for Tuco, as does Clint, and that gives his character uh, some sympathy. There's less sympathy for the bad, but even here there's a certain kind of breaking bad, better call Saul performance porn to Angel Eyes, who once he's been given money, completes a job. And just the, the, the absolute single-mindedness of the bad is something that you kind of grudgingly admire. And so these three people, who are all surface, another theme, that they're only their actions. They have no backstory other than Tuco's comments about his brother. It's merely their actions in the present that matter, and they form and unform alliances among the three of them if they go after in, in search of Confederate gold. And it ends up inevitably in one of the great kind of final scenes, climaxes of any movie ever, when you've taken what has been in the first two movies, Fistful and for a few dollars more, to the nth degree, and you have a three-way shootout in yet another circle, as Leone said, in a Freudian way, he's certainly obsessed with circles. You have a three-way shootout, which lasts for more than five minutes, but seems like it lasts five hours, because Leone takes advantage of his wonderful cinematography, and you get, again, the close-ups, where at one point it's just a whirl of looking at their three eyes, quicker and quicker and quicker as the moment to act comes. This, again, the cameras, which were second-rate, show these startling vistas of southern Spain as though it were the Old West, which are wonderful and claimed, which is a wonderful advantage of Leone's camera. And then these incredible close-ups, almost Goya-like or El Greco in the look at the faces, something out of the Prado. I mean, it, it really is like that. And the faces are stay with you. And Leone had this wonderful gift for finding faces for secondary characters beyond the three and the three-way shootout which takes everything he's done into the nth degree. Now it seems like five hours, though. Actually, it's five to ten minutes of running time, and this compelling story comes to an inevitable end. All three of the performers are fantastic, I would say, and, and he's certainly a fine performance still, but the least of the three is Lee Van Cleef, who was so good, and for a few dollars more, I think he really steals the movie even from Clint. Um, here he's fine but he's probably given a little less screen time than the other two, but he, he certainly does a good job with what he's got in playing the bad. And again, the performance porn, we may not like him at all, but we kind of fear him and see his skill set. And then really the film is more about the good and the ugly. And if anything, it's Tuco's movie. There's Tuco's on the screen more than Clint. 
speaks more than anyone or everyone else put together and is a wonderful addition to the cast, to the stock characters, the stock repertory company that Leone's building. And the, again, the wonderful verbiage, a comic opera character well-known to Italians enters in versus this laconic Clint image of California cool. And it works just wonderfully together, again, as instruments in a cinema. And, uh, and the, in the cinema, in effect, becomes the orchestra for Leone's opera. And that is going on, too. Again, the breathtaking landscapes are filmed as never before. And yet again, we have one of the great Morricone scores. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, when you say the name, you think of the score immediately in your head. It kicks in. So indelibly is the music bound to the story and all the way through. And this is two old school friends, uh, again, kindergartners together, if you can imagine, at the height of their art. So it has these four qualities that have been in all the spaghettis, a compelling storyline of a search of three amoral drifters through Civil War New Mexico, memorable performances by all three, by Eastwood, Van Cleef, and Wallach, the breathtaking landscapes and wonderful climax, and a haunting, absolutely unforgettable score. And all of that is there on view as we look at things as they go. Uh, the amount of money at the time matters less than this notion of getting beyond good and evil, as we've said that Clint um, has epitomized and that Leone has been playing with. And it really does recast the Western fully here and confidently. The metamorphosis of Leone is complete. He's taken the Westerns he loved in the 30s and 40s. He hated when they began to get cleaned up and moralistic in the 50s. And he's taken them somewhere entirely new by adding this comic opera character of Eli Wallach of Tuco. And he's made American Westerns and fused them with Italian opera into something absolutely unique by way of Kurosawa and the samurai epics. And all of this is fused together in an utterly unique and creative way, um, really unseen at that time. Um, and it really is him at the height of his game. He's confident, he has money, he can make a film now as long as he wants, and Leone would get into trouble with this later in his career when he made Once Upon a Time in America, which really became bloated. I mean, I'm not a fan, a lot of people are, I'm not a fan. At four hours in the original running time, although it certainly was butchered, four hours is too long, and, and Leone, as was true about his eating and his weight, becomes unrestrained as time goes on. But this is a nice mix where he's no longer pauperized by the limited budget of the first two films, but he hasn't yet gone to the excesses of Once Upon a Time in America. At three hours, it's on the long side. It's on the indulgent side, certainly, but it certainly works as a great movie, and it certainly is a great, great movie. I would argue, and we'll talk about it later, that Once Upon a Time in the West, the last of the spaghettis we're going to look at, is probably even a better film, which I know is heresy to many. It's shorter, it's more disciplined, it's more restrained. In fact, it's, it's his last real restrained effort, and, it, and it's even greater. But this is a great, great movie, probably only bettered, um, by Once Upon a Time in America, although when we're done, I'd be very interested to hear which of these you guys like the best. But I like the restraint of the last one. But this is full Verdi opera, and it works. It's still not too excessive, even at three hours in length. And boy, at the time, it made a lot of money, and it did very well, as did the other two, eclipsing all records up to then. Um, but the critics got this entirely wrong. This is one of the great critical foolers of all time. Uh, Roger Ebert later admitted that uh, the great Roger Ebert, and I, I commend you to read his many reviews and books, which are wonderful, maybe the best 
reviewer in the history of American film. And he admitted late in his life that, you know, if he had one regret, it was his dismissing of Leone and particularly the good, the bad, and the ugly. He didn't see what was there, but he wasn't alone. Along with Ebert, it received lukewarm reviews from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and Variety. And this ties to some of our arguments about politics. Don't believe that someone's an expert. They necessarily know what they're doing. The Kennedy people, after all, were the most credentialed group of foreign policy experts in history, and they got us into the Vietnam War. It's not the credentials. It's what you do with them. Uh, but and, and the good, the bad, and the ugly is an example. The, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Variety, and the, even the great Roger Ebert got this one entirely wrong. And now it's seen as simply one of the best movies ever made and a highlight of the genre of the spaghetti western. But at the time, it received ho-hum reviews, even though it was wildly popular. On the other hand, this is the movie that really cemented Leone with a whole generation of filmmakers Foremost among them, the great Quentin Tarantino, who says forthrightly, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is, in his mind, the greatest movie ever made. And Kill Bill, particularly Volume 2, uh, the excellent uh, two-volume series, Kill Bill, which are, are both great movies, though I, I slightly prefer the first one. But Volume 2 is a direct homage, and in fact, he even got Mort Morricone to help do the score. But Volume 2 is a direct homage to Leone. And he says, Tarantino, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is simply the greatest movie ever made for fusing these disparate ele elements that Tarantino would take. Stylized violence, um, which still compels the story along. Brilliant writing, um, where the characters in effect become instruments in the orchestra. Memorable performances and haunting, unforgettable scores and music to all of this. And Tarantino enthusiastically sees himself as Leone's disciple. And it really does show in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, where you see all these qualities. And Tarantino, being the great historian of film, um, is very generous in his praise, but rightly so, because Leone's films now look very, very modern for these qualities. And again, the amoral world, the existential world, how do you make sense and find meaning in a world where everyone is in it for themselves? How do you find what is authentic, what is real, what is matter, what matters in a world of chaos. And that time, the Civil War and the Vietnam War, and now the chaotic world that we happen to live in ourselves. And all of that is on glittering display in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, one of the great movies ever made. And I hope as I head off for my plane and my flight to Miami and my war game in Palm Beach tomorrow, I hope you really enjoyed our look at these three wonderful films. As we move into Once Upon a Time in the West, which will be our final Spaghetti Western, um, Clint moves away. I mean, and it's interesting that Clint, you know, really does, you know, if Leone is his father figure as a director, it's a Greek tragedy because he kills the father. Eastwood is famous for making workmanlike films that come in on budget, the opposite of the Verdi opera that he saw with Leone, and tired of making these epic kind of Westerns and worried he was going to be typecast, Clint turned down the chance to star in Once Upon a Time in the West. And I think this was good for both of them. Clint went on to becoming one of the iconic movie stars of all time, really using the success of the Three Spaghettis to launch his movie career into the stratosphere. But at the and then of course, even like a fine wine, he's aged into becoming one of the great American directors of all time. But it also freed Leone up to go back and get some other actors. He'd always wanted to work with Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson, and he gets the luminescent Claudia Cardinale, my son's favorite. Um, for once upon a time 
in the West, which uh, I think is even better. But looking back at the three Eastwood movies, they are unique. And you see stylistically, in terms of form, and in terms of substance, why they were a shout over the bow in the 1960s. As Leone did that best thing, whether you're a political risk analyst or a movie director, create something that lasts, that is unique, creative, and on the money. And on that happy note, I'm going to go catch my plane. Hope you guys enjoyed this culture. We'll do Once Upon a Time in the West when I get back. Please do subscribe to our newsletter, as so many of you have, and we will keep them coming and keep talking about the many things that matter. Take care and see you soon.